1980s, when an effort began to construct a Seattle memorial. Though there were some grand ideas for what might be appropriate, a public park was suggested, or renaming a street, the memorial became mired in the 80s just-say-no political furor over drugs. One television commentator argued that to honor Jimmy in any way was to glamorize a drug addict. Those hysterics derailed the initial effort, and the compromise memorial that resulted was a heated rock with Jimmy's name attached, set in the African savanna section of the Seattle Zoo. That spurred me to write a magazine piece in which I called the heated rock racist, xenophobic, and evidence that musical heritage and African-American culture were disregarded in predominantly white Seattle. The zoo rock, which remains today, the heating element broken last I checked, made Jimi Hendrix's grave even more important as a tour stop, since few thought a zoo was an appropriate place to mourn or honor Jimmy. I first met Jimmy's father, Al Hendrix, in the late 1980s and interviewed him on several occasions about his son's legacy and history. One of my first questions to Al was about Jimmy's grave. Why did Rock's best-known left-handed guitarist have an etching of a right-handed guitar on his tombstone? Al said it was a mistake made by the monument makers. Al was not a detail-oriented guy, particularly when it came to his late son's history. Al was kind enough to invite me to his home, which itself was something of a roadside museum to Jimmy. No parent wants to bury a child, and it was Al's unkind destiny to outlive his firstborn by three decades. The walls of his house were covered with gold record awards and photo enlargements of Jimmy. There, among family photos of Jimmy, as a baby or in an army uniform, were several images that belong in any 60s photo collage. Jimmy, burning his guitar on stage at the Monterey Pop Festival. Jimmy, with a white-fringed jacket on stage at Woodstock. Jimmy, in his butterfly velvet suit on stage at the Isle of Wight. There were a few pictures of Jimmy's brother, Leon, on the wall, and, bizarrely, a giant painting of Al's deceased German shepherd. On a basement wall was an image familiar to me, the same blacklight poster of a godlike Jimmy that I owned as an adolescent. I never asked Al Hendricks why Jimmy's mother's grave had been lost for almost fifty years, and Al died in 2002. In the several years Room Full of Mirrors took to complete, at least five of my interview subjects have passed away, including experienced bass player Noel Redding. I interviewed Noel on almost a dozen different occasions, but it was nonetheless sobering to realize after his sudden death in May 2003 that my conversation with him two weeks prior was his last telling of his own story before his passing. There were moments in writing this book when I sensed that the history of Jimmy's era was slowly slipping away, and that fragility made the extensive research all the more delicate and imperative. Still, there were conversations I had in places I visited where Jimmy Hendrix seemed positively vibrant and almost breathing. On Seattle's Jackson Street, the historical center of Northwest African-American nightlife, amid storefronts that five decades ago were clubs that hosted local talent like Ray Charles, Quincy Jones, and Jimmy, one can find pieces of a life still freshly remembered. Just down the street from 23rd Avenue, sitting on blocks in an empty lot, is the house Jimmy grew up in. It has been saved with an eye to future preservation. 
Stop by the flower shop on the corner, and the ladies behind the counter will remember Jimmy from Leshai Elementary School. Across the street at a Starbucks, there's a gray-haired gentleman sipping coffee every morning who once danced the jitterbug with Jimmy's mother, Lucille. And in the retirement home on the corner, 88-year-old Dorothy Harding sits in a wheelchair and tells stories of being Jimmy's babysitter and of the stormy night he was born. In Seattle's black community, most people knew and know Jimi Hendrix as Buster, his family nickname. In the text herein, he is frequently called by that name, particularly by family. I've also taken the narrative liberty of using the spelling Jimmy, J-I-M-I, throughout Hendrix's life for consistency and to avoid confusion with Jimmy's best childhood friend, Jimmy Williams, who shows up in this history often. Hendrix did not use the spelling J-I-M-I until he was 22, but even then he remained Buster to most of those who knew him in Seattle. Searching for Buster led me to Jackson Street many times, and also to shadowy corners of London, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Harlem, Greenwich Village, and other points across the globe. It put me in beer-strewn dance halls in northern England, where the experience once played, and in dank Seattle basements, where a teenage Jimi Hendrix practiced guitar with neighborhood boys. It led me to dusty census records, and to graveyards, like Greenwood Memorial, where I watched the shovel finally hit Lucille Hendrix's welfare grave marker, a brick, really, which had been overgrown by a foot of soil. As that dirt slid off the shovel, the spot of Jimmy's mother's grave was uncovered for the first time in several decades. When Jimmy's brother, Leon, first saw the marker that indicated where his mother was buried, he wept. Leon had never known the exact location of his mother's remains. In Al Hendrix's basement, there was another piece of Jimi Hendrix memorabilia that was buried, in a way. It was stuck back in a corner and only pulled out for the faithful. It was a two-by-four-foot mirror that Jimmy had created. Al was never very good on dates, but Jimmy's brother Leon also attributed the piece to Jimmy, created sometime in 1969. It was in Jimmy's apartment in New York, Leon recalled and it was shipped back to my dad after Jimmy died. Inside the frame sit fifty-odd pieces of shattered mirror, set in clay in the exact position they would have held upon the breaking of the mirror. The shards all point toward the center, where an unbroken plate-sized circle rests. This, Al Hendricks would say, when he pulled the Salvador Dali-esque art out of a cupboard, was Jimmy's room full of mirrors, Room Full of Mirrors was the title of a song Hendrix first began writing in 1968. He wrote several early lyric drafts of the tune and recorded a couple of takes of it. The song was never officially released during Jimmy's lifetime, but Hendrix considered it for inclusion in what would have been his fourth studio album. As this particular song gives evidence, Jimmy had an extraordinary sense of self-awareness and an uncanny ability to use music to express emotional truths. While audiences at Hendrix concerts clamored for his guitar theatrics on hits like Purple Haze, Jimmy, in private, was drawn more toward pensive and reflective songs, such as Room Full of Mirrors, or playing the blues standards he'd grown up on. The song, Room Full of Mirrors, tells the story of a man trapped in a world of self-reflection so powerful it haunts him, even in his dreams. He is liberated after smashing the mirrors 
and wounded from the shattered glass. He seeks an angel who can give him freedom. Holding the physical manifestation of this concept, the broken mirror artwork that Jimmy's father kept in his basement, one cannot help but think of the deep complexity of the man who created this song, and think of the day Jimi Hendrix stared at fifty slivers of his own reflection in this piece of art. All I could see, he sang in the song, was me. Charles R. Cross, Seattle, Washington, April 2005 Prologue Room Full of Mirrors Liverpool, England, April 9, 1967 I used to live in a room full of mirrors. All I could see was me. Jimi Hendrix, Room Full of Mirrors Sorry, mates. We can't serve your salt in here. We got rules, you know. Those words from behind the bar came from the lips of a crusty-looking old salt, whose hand shook with a palsy as he spoke. Upon issuing his warning, he turned away and began drawing another patron a pint. His initial look had been so quick, nothing more than a seasoned flick of an eye, that the two men standing before him had no idea why they were unable to get a drink. It was odd, as this was the kind of prototypical English pub that would serve anyone. Children, men already too drunk to stand up, escaped convicts still in shackles if they had a pound note in their hand. One of the men denied service was 21-year-old Noel Redding, bass player in the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Noel had been born in Folkestone, a city in southeastern England, and he had already spent a lifetime in pubs and around cranky publicans. He had never been turned down when ordering a drink, except after closing time. But this wasn't closing time.